vollständig aufhebt. Auch hier letztes Satz. Okay. Ready? Okay. Ready?
Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you, uh, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we move past our celebration of Advent, let us never forget the work that you have done and the work that you continue to do. We walk faithfully in this world, knowing that your work is good. Our God is an awesome God, He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God, He reigns from heaven above with wisdom. Power and love, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God, He reigns from heaven above with wisdom. Power and love, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God, he reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God, he reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power and love our god is an awesome god our god is an awesome god who reigns from heaven above with wisdom power and love our god is an awesome god our god is an awesome God who reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. All right, couple of things. I'm going to remember this one right off the bat before I forget because I didn't write it down. Um, Elena has envelopes pre-named and everything if you wanted them like you have in past years. So see her, and if you didn't, if she doesn't have them for you and you want them, just let her know. 
I remember, go me. A um, couple of things. One, uh, just as a heads up, uh, Matt and Becca are not sick. They went and saw Becca's family in Louisiana and got home at 9 a.m. this morning. <laughs> so if I know Matt and Becca, one of them is probably already online because Matt wanted me to send him sermon notes. So they're probably already on the live stream listening. And so, hi, don't fall asleep on me too quickly. <laughs> it's, no, it's not fun if you fall asleep and I can't pick on you for it. Um, other things, Missions Project, Pregnancy Care Center of Rockford. That's what the crib out front is for. There are still shopping lists if you need one. If they run out, I'll print more out. So items on the shopping list, drop them off in the car. We will do that through January at least, all right? So you got plenty of time, but don't forget, because I know what's going to happen. You're all going to come to me the last Sunday in January. Can, can I have one more week? I'm You know it's happening. You know it's going to happen. It happens for everything, because you know who else is going to forget? Me. <laughs> so... It's there. Grab a shopping list. Thank you, thank you, thank you in advance. We've already had some items come in. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it, and I know they will as well. Um, other reminder, we have been, we tried to get back to regular life, and we sort of did a little bit at the end of the summer, and we sort of had some success. So I'm telling you now, we're starting, Sunday school is getting ramped back up next Sunday, all right? Children's classes are going to be ready to go. We'll have at least the adult class that I teach ready to go. So Sunday school, next Sunday. There you go. <laughs> Better be careful on this concrete floor. I'm going to hurt something. <laughs> blow out a hamstring stomping my foot. What happened to your bastard? Well, he blow out a hammy. Doing what? Telling us about Sunday school. Such an athlete that I am. So that's your reminder. So between 915 and 930, you know how we work. We say 915, and by the time you get in here, get your coffee, have a donut. By the time we get there, it's 930, we get started. But we're, we are getting ramped back up. So for everybody that tells me they like the Sunday school class, if you are not here next Sunday, we are starting without you. And we are... We, when we last left off, we finished Exodus, so that means we get to start in Leviticus, everybody's favorite book. So there you go. Um, anything else that I am forgetting? Going once, going twice. In that case, this is the one you can say out loud. Who visited Joseph, Mary, and Jesus on the night he was born? No, the shepherds. The We Three Kings of Orient are came later. <laughs> the people who were there that night were, they were shepherds in the fields watching over their flocks by night come on don't you don't you listen to linus don't you listen to linus <laughs> see and you should listen to linus because charles schultz that was actually those were his two non-negotiables were that that speech by linus and hark the herald at the end they actually cbs wanted to cut hark the herald and charles schultz wouldn't let him because Hark the Herald is the most theologically robust Christmas song ever written. If you've never paid attention, go home this week and read all the verses to Hark the Herald. I mean, that's like a full sermon's worth of theology. It's good stuff. Amen. So that's why he wanted that one at the end, because it, it lays out the gospel in a way that you can't forget it. Because let's be honest, anytime somebody goes, Hark the Herald, what do you picture? You picture Charlie Brown and friends with their heads back like this guy. Mm-hmm. You can see it in your mind, can't you? Because you've watched it on TV every year since 1960-something. So there you go. No, it was the shepherds. Why shepherds? Well, that's where they were, but why shepherds? Who would you expect the announcement of God in flesh to be given to? You would want that to go to Herod or to Rome. No, who does God send the announcement to? The, the low shepherds. The lowly shepherds, the lowest of the low. How was Christ born? As, as the lowest of the low, not a king in royal robes, but as one who identifies as we are, humble, 
lowly. This is why God exalts the humble. He raises them up because they are the ones who are poor in spirit. The first message of the gospel is what? Me, bad. Him, good. From the very beginning, God is sending the message about who this message is supposed to reach. As he comes humbly, he serves humbly. The announcement goes to those who are working and living humbly. Everything's going on there. Read your Bible. It'll do you good. Now, don't say this one out loud. It's trying to get you back into the rhythm of trivia stuff, so give you an easy one, but it's an important one. Out of what did Adam and Eve make coverings for themselves? I know you know it. The reason for the question, it's not what, it's why. All right, so read your reason for the question, and we'll go over that next Sunday. All right, last chance. Am I forgetting anything else? In that case, I am getting out of the way so we continue on with worship. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in this grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you crying garment with your robes be white? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansion bright and be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb?
There's a place for pain and the care of the soul. To die is to gain, so to live is a whole. And if perspective change is sometimes for the best, a chance to rearrange, to put faith to the test. I give walked a thousand miles against the grain. I have seen the sun go down, only to rise again. In the story of my life, there is a scheme between the lines. Greatest things are born against the grain. At first it was a choice or the hard way to go. Then it was a voice saying yes, saying no. Though the course was always tough, but his heart became strong. What grew out of the rough was a will to go. I could walk a thousand miles against the grain. I have seen the sun go down only to rise again. In the story of my life, there's a scheme between the line. Greatest things are born. Against the grain, I felt the coarseness of the sand beneath my feet. And I felt the hand that rubs these edges smooth and I give walk to thousand miles against the grain. I have seen the sun go down only to rise again. Greatest things are, greatest things are born against the grave. 
right, good morning and welcome to airport week. <laughs> Reason I say that, you ever, you ever land at an airport, go through a terminal at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, there's going to be people sleeping in the corner, somebody's having breakfast, somebody else is having dinner, there's people at a bar having a beer, it's like, what time is it? Because it doesn't exist at the airport, it's just whatever time you're living on. That's the week between Christmas and New Year's. Do I go to work? Am I, go am I setting an alarm? Are we working? Are we doing regular things? Are we still on holiday schedule? Congratulations, it is now airport week. <laughs> there, there you go. It's just, it's just completely off-put. For years, this was my Sunday because as a youth pastor, this was always the Sunday our pastor took vacation. So this was the one, one of the Sundays guaranteed I was going to have to preach and the one Sunday that nobody was at church because everybody took off, took off after Christmas. So we would go from 200 in worship to like 75. And it's like, hey! So there you go. So I enjoy it. I have fun. We are back to the salt mines. So we are leaving Christmas and we are going back to the plagues of Egypt. Yay! But because we timed this out right. I say we because I didn't have anything to do with it. I just started on the right day and then divided the text up. So God knew where we'd be, when we were going to be there, and why we'd be there. So we don't dive right back into the plagues, but we do get a warning of them, which is good because I don't think anybody wants to go from Christmas you know, right into the death of the firstborn. So we at least get a week or so buffer in there. Now, anybody remember where we were specifically? Because we've got to make sure we cover this so that when we hit the ground running with Exodus 11, we can, uh, we can go at full speed. The end of Exodus 10. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he will, was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware. Do not see my face again. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. And you thought your work environment was toxic. Imagine being Moses having to go in there every day. Now, we have been warned God's work in Egypt has systematically torn down and taken apart every deity and resort that the Egyptians would have to turn to. What is the one power left in Egypt that has not been torn down? Anybody remember? Oh, I think I heard it. So say it again. Maybe I didn't. It's Pharaoh himself, the one who represents the gods of Egypt on this earth. He's the last one, and we'll cover that as we get into this this morning. So everything else, everyone else is absolutely gone. So with that said, let's read Exodus 11. We will cover all 10 verses this morning. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that each man may ask from his neighbor, and each woman from her neighbor, for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight... I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. All right, back to the beginning because there's actually some good stuff. A couple of exit ramps this morning, but they are useful and we will cover them when we get there. So the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Remember, this is as promised. There have been no surprises thus far in this book. Exodus 3, I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. After that, he will let you go. Fast forward to Exodus 4. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Exodus 6, to the second half of this promise. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of the land. See, God was going to break Pharaoh from the beginning, and not just so in a way that Pharaoh would go, All right, fine, I give up, you guys can leave. But in a way that Pharaoh would say, Fine, I give up, get out, leave, take your stuff, take my stuff, go. As the uh, great prophet Yosemite Sam once said, Yamul, Yamul, ya, ya, ya. Now, what is being proved by this? What's the point of this? Go back to Isaiah 45, something we've read numerous times in Exodus. It's a good lesson, though. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now, quick little aside. How blessed are we? Do we need to learn this lesson firsthand? Do we need to learn this lesson by experience? No, why not? More than that, because God has proven this, we can do what with it? We can read it. We don't have to get whacked upside the back of the head 17 times to get the message. Now, what do we typically do? <laughs> we, we have mules looking at us going, man, that dude is stubborn. And we get what? You get that gib slap constantly from the Holy Spirit. Because this is why I say, read your Bible. It will do you good. Because what do you try to do with your children? You tell them, when you see them going down the road that you have been down and you know where that road leads, you say what? Stop! Don't do that! And they look at you and go, but why? Well, because I know where it goes. How could you possibly know this? Because I've been down that road. You plead with them, please don't do what I did. Learn from my mistakes. And sometimes they do, and we rejoice. And sometimes they don't, and we mourn. Christian, 
This is why we ground everything we are and everything we do upon the foundation of Scripture. It lays out the highways and byways upon which we are supposed to travel, and it puts up the do not enter signs down the ones that we are not. When we go in the knowledge of Scripture and we see the road we are not supposed to go down, you know how we end up going down it? See, we see the do not enter sign and we, we don't go, okay, here we go. No, we walk up and go, eh, get out of my way. And that's why it ends badly. That's if we're honest with ourselves. See, we try to convince ourselves that we sneak around it. I wish somebody had told me. They did. You knew. You did it anyway. The wisdom of God says what? Repent. Return to him. For that too Christ has died. His grace is sufficient. His mercy covers. And we start again. Based on what? The principles that he has laid out in Scripture. Now, remember that Isaiah description of God, the one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being, and creating calamity, that he is the Lord who does all these. We're going to need that later. So file that away. We'll come back to it. Instead, until then, verse 2. So Moses is commanded, because that's what's going on. So speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Again, this is as promised. Back to Exodus 3. I will grant the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold, clothing, and you will put them on your sons and your daughters, thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, Question of the morning. Why? Was this just another way to elevate Israel and tear down Egypt? Is that all this is? See, this is where you need to start thinking. Remember we've talked about this before. Our dual timelines. We haven't mentioned this in a while. We've got our real-life timeline. Moses is there on the ground, speaking to Aaron, speaking to Pharaoh, telling the sons of Israel all of these things. They are real people living real events in a real place during all of this. At the same time, you have God accomplishing from Genesis to Revelation his work. It is outside of this timeline, and the things of the timeline are tools and pictures in that process. What is Israel's ultimate purpose? This is, this is an easy one. Give me your Sunday school answer. <laughs> now, this is where I mess with you. What about Jesus? What is Israel's ultimate goal? To point to Jesus. To point to Christ. Israel, in the Exodus, is not just a nation being delivered. They are a picture of the work of God. Hence, this. I mean, we just finished Christmas, right? How many of you at some point outside of here you know, read the Christmas story at least once? Bad Christians. No, I'm kidding. At her core, Israel becomes a picture of Christ and his work and the work that God does on his behalf. So things like John 10. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. First picture, you're going into a new land as a new nation. What will they need? New and abundant provisions. Who provides for that? 
God does. More than that, though, it's not just a picture of the work of Christ. It is a picture of Christ himself. Matthew chapter 2. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Who am I talking about? No, that, that's the child, but who's worshipping? Well, no, this isn't the shepherds. This is the, this is the magi, guys. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, stop. You ever wonder why this is the very next verse? And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Why weren't they supposed to go back to Herod? Because Herod's going to kill them. Now, fun facts about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Luke chapter 2. When the days for the purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, talking about Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. Now time out. Leviticus 12 lays out the sacrifice. So you give birth, you have to offer a sacrifice for the child. This is what helps cleanse the uh, the uncleanness. This is part of the purification of Israel. And the command was from Leviticus that you offer a lamb and a pigeon or a lamb and a turtle dove. Now, how many of you got lambs running around? Now, then they would, but how many of you have lambs running around that you can, oh, just so happen to take up to the temple every time you have a kid and sacrifice it? Not everybody did. So Leviticus made an accounting for that. If the family was too poor for a lamb, they could give, instead of the lamb and the pigeon or the lamb and the turtle dove, they could give two pigeons or, as the song says, Two turtle doves, but they didn't have to bring the partridge in a pear tree. Now, continue back to Luke 2. And to offer the sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Joseph and Mary were broke. They were poor. They couldn't afford the lamb, so they gave the offering that was allotted to them because they were poor. How does a poor family take up from Bethlehem, run away, get to Egypt, set up shop, and live there for a couple of years? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold will get you someplace right now, won't it? I need a cart, I need a donkey, I need some food. Hey, I got some gold, that will take care of that. But when I get there and the gold runs out, what can I do with some frankincense and some myrrh? I can sell it, and I can provide for a house, I can provide to get a business started, I can make a living, I can do things. Who made sure that Christ would be protected so that his family would go to Egypt and be safe? God did. Who made sure Israel would be protected, that on their journey they would have provision and they would be cared for? God did. The work of Israel is a picture of the work of Christ. Now, if he can do it for Israel, and he can accomplish all this to work in Christ, can he provide for you as well? Yes. Will he always provide for everything that you want? No. Please remember that. This is the breakdown of so many Christians in this world, is I want God to give me what I want. And we fail to understand that God is a benevolent father who gives you what you need. Sometimes you need ice cream. Sometimes you need a swat in the butt. A good father will give you what you need when you need it. When your child is having an absolute fit in Walmart, you don't go, who wants a cookie? You go, where's clothing? I need a belt to borrow. (laughs) When you are having a fit, you don't need a pat on the head and told that you're doing awesome and everything is okay. You need what? 
You, you need a swift kick in the butt sometimes, and the Holy Spirit will provide it. Remember, God provides according to his children, according to the need, according to what is best for them. What is best for you? To grow in maturity, to progress in the path of sanctification, to forsake the things of this world and cling to the things of God and of his kingdom. That is what is best. And he will accomplish that through his working, through the means of this world, the one causing well-being and creating calamity. Too often we look up in our calamity and go, how did this happen? God, why did you do this to me? Go, yeah, I did do this. Why? Now think. Now we progress. Now we listen. We return to scripture. We repent of our sins and again carry on to the path the way we are supposed to. Now, verse 3. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Don't gloss over this detail in how much work God has done. Rewind in your Bible history to the book of Genesis, Genesis 43. Talking about Joseph, they served him by himself and them by themselves. Talking about Joseph and his brothers being there. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Genesis 46. Joseph giving advice to his father. When, a, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. They hated these people. You want to know what actual racism looks like? It looks like Egypt dealing with Israel. A hatred. Why? Because you're you and I'm me. It has nothing to do with what you are or what you do, just because of who you are. I don't like you because you're a Hebrew. Hmm, not a whole lot's changed in this world, has it, unfortunately, down through the years. Now, that they have gone from that to... Moses is greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. How does that happen? Psalm 105 gives you an answer. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. Why is the dread of Israel fallen upon Egypt? Who is that really a dread of? What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The Egyptians are afraid of God. They are afraid of Yahweh. And because they are afraid of Yahweh, they are terrified of Yahweh's people. Because they are seeing judgment in real time. And it's terrifying to them. The one who causes well-being and creates calamity is going on in real time. Causing well-being for his people, creating calamity for not his people. Hmm. I wonder if there's some Bible verses that mention that when we get to the New Testament. There's pictures going on throughout all of this that are explaining that God's working in the universe is not novel. It is not new when you get to the New Testament. It is not new when you get to us. That God's work has been consistent from the beginning and will be consistent until the end. That's good news for us. It's not so good news for those that are not us. Because what that means is that judgment is coming and it will abide. So, all right. We're going to do, oh, I should have told you this before, Elena. This is going to mess you up. We're going to read four and five, cover five, and then go back to four. <laughs> So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. All right, second things first, because that's what's in verse 5. I think this is the way to cover it. Why highlight Pharaoh and the slave girl? 
extremes. It's the greatest to the least. Who's going to get left out? Nobody. The other reason to make sure you point out Pharaoh, who is Pharaoh? He's not just the dude in charge. He is the mediator of the Egyptian pantheon, their gods on earth. When you want to go to their gods, you go through Pharaoh. When you want to enact their power in your nation, you go through Pharaoh. He's the one who calls down their blessings. He's the one who calls down their curses. He is the one who represents everything about the idolatry of Egypt that God is crushing. Good reminder, Ezekiel 22. The people of the land have practiced oppression. They have committed robbery. They have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. Ezekiel's talking to Israel. Could you not apply that to Egypt as well? They've oppressed those that are of Israel. They have cast them down. They were strangers in the land and they have been mistreated. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. The, their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. See, Israel should have believed what Ezekiel promised. You know why? They saw it. They saw it in real time. It was part of their history that the nation who forgets God, the nation who forsakes his way, his principles, and his worship and turns aside to idols, judgment of God abides upon that nation. And what does the judgment of God look like? <laughs> I don't want any part of that. This is why the flood. This is why the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is why the work of God, because it is demonstrating that his wrath is real sin is a problem and you do not wish to confront this on your last day this is why israel should have turned when they when they were in the wrong and why when they didn't it was such a grievous sin this is why egypt is struggling because they are not recognizing the god of creation but are instead lost in their idolatry and following along hmm i wonder how many nations we have like that in the world today <laughs> and the reason i say that is because why are we surprised that the world looks like what it looks like? I mean, how often do we wake up and look at the news or read the paper or see something online or on Facebook and we go, I can't believe it. I can. Unbelieving people are acting like unbelieving people. And in a lot of instances, believing people are acting like unbelieving people. And we wonder why our systems are broken why our governments don't work, and why sin abounds and is celebrated in so many ways. It's not because we have failed, and it's not because God has failed. It is because humanity is clinging so desperately to his sin. We get that. As Christians, we fight that struggle day in and day out. We fight it with the Holy Spirit on our side. Imagine what that war looks like without the Holy Spirit. It's unwinnable. That's the testimony of Scripture. And when a world rejects God and his principles entirely what will it look like a lot of what you see day in and day out see we've had a common grace from god for so many centuries because western civilization when you talk about the united states when you talk about western europe and even parts of eastern europe were built upon a christian foundation even if the majority of the people were not christian the ideals the fundamental way that the society functioned was grounded in a christian history and lineage that doesn't make them Christian, but it gives them a common grace. The example we've used is a rising tide raises how many boats? All of them. So even if you are a pagan unbeliever, if you are in a nation that is following the precepts of God, your life will, for the most part, go how? Pretty well. 
Take away the foundation. What are you left with? We got a Bible verse and a song about that. (laughs) Shifting sand. What does a world built upon shifting sand look like? Facing the judgment of God. Facing destruction. That's why everyone in Egypt is covered. Because Pharaoh has rejected. The people have rejected. On whole, what will be affected? The nation will be taken down. So with that said, we can go back to verse 4. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt. Don't miss that. Who's doing this? God is the one causing well-being and creating calamity. He will bring judgment. There's nobody else capable of bringing judgment. There's nobody else allowed to bring judgment. Uh, When we went through this with men's Bible study on Wednesdays, a great example of this is, um, is the book of Job. Because my favorite question to ask is, even after going through the book, we sometimes got this wrong because we forget. Who brought up Job? Who introduced his name? God did. See, if you're not paying attention, you think Satan shows up before God and goes, look at Job, look how good you've been to him. God looks at Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? Who gives Satan permission to torment him? God does. Who does it twice? God does. Who then shows up and says, who do you think you are? God does. Causing well-being, creating calamity. Judgment comes from the hand of God, and it is righteous and it is good. Because let's be honest, what do you want poured out on sin? Puppies, rainbows, and and cuddles? (laughs) No! I want people who do wrong in this world to get what? Oh, yeah, especially when they wrong who? Me. If you wrong me, you know what I definitely want? I I want some hellfire and brimstone poured out on the one who has wronged me. Christian, we should. We should. It's good and it's right. In the meantime, what do we proclaim? That the judgment is coming, but there is a God. There is a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who has come, has lived, has bled, and has died for the forgiveness of your sins. The only thing that separates me and God's blessing from them in God's judgment is the work of Christ. Nothing I have done, nothing I have brought to the table. And remember, it is God who does this work. This is something that's explained to you in in Scripture. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's nothing hidden in the darkness that will not what? Be exposed to the light. Psalm 135 gives you the same, same lesson. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Who makes lightnings for the rain? Who brings forth the wind from his treasuries? He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders in your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. It is God who brings judgment because only God is capable of judging and only God has the right standing upon which to make that judgment. Verse 6. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. All right. 
we get why, right? Like, you, you don't need to be told that everyone losing their firstborn is bad <laughs> from a human perspective. You don't need to be told that people will be mourning and crying and weeping. That, hmm, maybe we should use a New Testament reference. That there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, why? Because this is judgment. Now, question. Go back to Christmas. What's our reason for hope and peace? God is. Remove God from the picture. What's our reason for hope and peace? This is Romans 2. Do you think lightly of his riches and kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the days of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. See, it's a reminder. Why is it the kindness of God that leads me to repentance? When I examine my life, and I see that in my sin I am on a wrong path, doing the wrong thing, going in the wrong direction, what can I do about it? See, I can ask, but what can I physically do about it? But without the Holy Spirit to empower me, what can I do about it? Nothing. What do I deserve? Do I deserve God's grace? Do I deserve his mercy? No, no, I don't. Hence, it is the kindness of God that leads me to repentance. Because I see that I'm going the wrong way. I see that I am actively and consciously doing it. I see that I am desiring these things, and I see that I can do nothing about it. And yet, I see a provision of a Savior. I see the mercy of God on display in Christ, and I recognize that what I did not deserve, he has provided. And what I could not do, he has accomplished. That is why I repent. That is why I change. That is why I turn, because I see his goodness and his mercy. And when I look out in the world and I see Romans and I go, he's going to judge everyone according to his deeds, I go, awesome. Because you know what my deeds are offered in? Christ. They're not good because I'm good. They're good because he is good. They're not good because I have accomplished something. They are good because of what he has accomplished. Open the books. They're going to see all your sin. I know. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to show how great and mighty his mercy actually is. It's going to show how much his grace is covered. And it's going to show how good he was and how much the Holy Spirit accomplished in my life. Because you're going to see where I started and you can see where I end and go, wow, look at what he did. Open it all up. This is why we shouldn't be afraid as Christians of our sin. And see, this is where we break down. Because what happens when you come to a church and go, oh, guys, you will not believe what I have done. And everybody goes, <gasps> why do we do that? What have we forgotten? We've forgotten us. We've forgotten that we are all in the boat of misery together except for the grace of God. And we go, I can't believe you did that. See, I've committed a multitude of sins there. I've raised you up. Like, how could you do that? And at the same time, I've raised me up because now who is better than you? Well, obviously I am. We've forgotten the first part of the gospel, which is me, bad. Him, good. That's our good caveman theology. Ogabuga, right? 
This is what we forget when we do this. And we see, again, because I am bad, it is his grace, his mercy, what he has provided for me that kicks me in the back of the head and goes, hey, this is the wrong road, but hey, look at that. <laughs> Let's go that way. This is what Egypt is missing. This is why there is wrath. This is why there is mourning and just destruction on all levels because they have no hope apart from God. And because they have no God, they have no hope. And because they have no hope and they have no God, they have no peace. Verse 7, here's your distinction. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, God will separate his people. I mentioned New Testament verses to talk about this. Let's go to one. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. What's going on here? God is separating not his people from his people. He's also going to protect them. Why? Because this is what he does. Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. This is also your promise in the book of Revelation. Why are those walls of the, of the New Jerusalem so stinking high? What is that meant to demonstrate? You can't climb them. You can't tear them down because who has built them? God has. So who will, ass who will assault this city of God? No one. Therefore, all who dwell in it will be safe. Here's your picture in action. God doesn't need to erect walls. He can just do what? No. We've seen this throughout the plagues, right? Hail over there, and there's no hail over here. There's darkness over there, and there's no darkness over here. Did, did God build a canopy and install a flood lamp? No, he just said no. This is where the darkness stops, because who creates light and creates darkness? Isaiah 45. Just a process that for a second. See, you want to tie yourself in a knot? Think about God creating darkness. <laughs> and just, wait, you want to talk about, I'll take thoughts that hurt my head for a thousand, Alex. How do you make darkness? See, we don't. We do what? We turn off light. Darkness just is. But God, as we read in 1 Timothy this morning, who dwells in unapproachable light, there's no not light. Darkness is something that God had to actually create when he made this world. He had to physically make dark. <laughs> it just sounds dumb to say out loud. So anytime you get messed up and you're like, I just, don't, I just don't think God is big enough for this problem. The man made darkness. I think he can handle your problem. And then, like I said, let your get a good headache going and then go take two aspirin and go, thanks be to God that he has saved me, because I can't make sense of this. And that's why, because he makes sense of this, because he is your provision. He is your separation. He is the one who does all of these things. And by the way, you talk about a fun example. Don't think dog like we have dog. We've had a couple thousand extra years of, uh, of domesticating. Dogs then weren't nice. Like, if you had a dog, it was for guard duty. It was for the military. I mean... They didn't have like little little chihuahuas and little foo-foo dogs the size of a football that you sat with and, and you know, 
not not in mass. I mean, if you were super wealthy, you did. I know that the Chinese had dogs that they used as um, instead of water bottles to keep you warm. If you were elderly, they'd give you those little foo-foo dogs, and you put it in the blanket with you, and it would sit there and keep you warm. I'm not kidding. This is how this worked. Um, oh, which one is that? Is it, is, it, is it the Shih Tzu that does it? It's basically it's a water bottle. It's, it's a hot water bottle that barks. <laughs> Even the Shizu, though, when you go over to Mike and Jan's house, those sweet little lovable things do what? <laughs> they love Mike and Jan to death, but if you're not Mike and Jan, what do they do? They try to eat you. It's this big. If you've ever had a chihuahua or known anybody who's had a chihuahua, if you're not the family of that dog, what is that dog going to do when you go over the house? Yes. Now imagine you haven't had an extra 3,000 years of domesticating every line of dog, and they're running around the streets, or they're on furlough from the army, or they're working in guard duty. How polite are these things? Yeah, you show up and it does what? Yes. Until God says what? Shut it. <laughs> I don't care how big and bad you think you are. When God says quiet, you do what? You sit down and be quiet. Case in point. Verse 8, all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. Right, we're going to pause real quick because what's the result of all this work? What's the result of all this work? Why is God doing this? Go back to Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is why the warning, when Christ returns, what will every tongue do? What will every knee do? There's a reason for that. Go back to Exodus 7. The Lord said to Moses, see, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. When they're talking to Moses, who is Pharaoh and his servants talking to? They're talking to God. Moses speaks for who? God. So when you speak to Moses, you're speak, you're, Moses is the mediator who's delivering the message on behalf of God. Go back to Isaiah 45 to the end of the chapter. Gather yourselves. Come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol. Pray to a God that cannot save. Declare, set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I? the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except for me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and, I, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Do you ever notice when you read Philippians 2 and it talks about because of Jesus' work, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that it's set aside, it's marked off in some way? Because it's a quote from Isaiah 45. What Paul is saying, what was true of Yahweh of the Old Testament is true of Jesus in the New Testament. Why is it true of Yahweh? Because this is who he is. He is God and there is no other. And if you are persistent in your idolatry that you confess another God and you bow down before another God, you will face judgment. And you know what you'll do in that judgment? You will acknowledge that the idol is worthless and that it is Yahweh 
that has power. It is he that possesses grace that you have rejected, and it is he who will rightly judge you. Christian, if our lives are not pointing to this God, we have missed it. And if our evangelism and our discipleship is not pointing to this God, we have missed it completely. This is why our world looks like it does. We, as a church, and I don't just mean like us in this building, I mean like as a church, have lost for the long, for a long time in this country especially, the concept of a righteous judge of a God. We have tried to do what when it comes to the kingdom? Let's entertain somebody. Let's, let's be nicer than Jesus. Let's not talk about the hard parts. Let's just, we just overdose on grace. Look, who wants to hear about grace? I do. In order to have grace make sense, what must precede it? It's got to. There has to be grace in, in the face of something. We, I've used this example a long time ago. It's been a while, so I'll break it out again. All right. North Carolina, South Carolina, they've got them in California. You know those long piers out into the ocean? They build them out of telephone poles and everything. And you go, you're like 300 yards out, it feels like, in the ocean. What if you're standing on the end of that pier one day? You're looking over, watching the seagulls. There's dudes fishing. You can see the sharks in the bottom. You know, the typical day at the ocean. And some dude comes tearing off down the pier, gets to the end, looks at you, goes, I love you, and jumps over the end of the pier. What just happened? Does that make any sense? No. Now, let's say you're there with your child or your grandchild, and you're being silly, and you've got, you're holding them on the end of the railing, and something gives, and there goes the kid. Now, dude comes running down the pier, jumps over the side, and he goes, I love you! That makes sense, doesn't it? There's a reason. There's an expectation. There's an explanation. There's got to be a calamity for love and grace from God to make sense. That calamity is what? Our world corrupted by what? Our sin. Our sin. Not their sin. My sin. I need Jonathan here for this one, because Jonathan knows the answer to this one. And this one he'd get right. What's the one verse you're allowed to argue with in the Bible? I, as your pastor, I give you permission to argue with one Bible verse. When Paul tells Timothy that he is the chief of sinners, you know what you should say? Uh-uh, I am. I'm the biggest sinner. And you know what you should say? Uh-uh, I am. See, there's where we should be arguing. Because you know what we're really arguing about when we say that in Christ? What we're saying is, no, 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 I sinned more than you did. God demonstrated even more grace on me. Look how much grace he had to have to save me. Who am I praising? God. Who is being glorified? God. This is the picture. This is the calamity that God rescues from. This is the reason why it makes sense, is that God is the Savior. Savior from what? From sin and the judgment. From who? Our sin, his judgment. Think about that. The one who is judge, the one who is righteous is the one who provides, the one who is gracious, the one who is Savior. None of us, all of him. Moses has been demonstrating this by his commands from God. God has been demonstrating this to Egypt by his work in judging Egypt and redeeming and rescuing Israel. And you know who hasn't seen it? Most of the people. Hence, what are they doing? 
and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So Moses goes in, proclaims the message, your people will bow down to me. What does Pharaoh say? He didn't say a thing. So if you're Moses, what's left? (laughs) Now, is that surprising? No. What's left for Pharaoh? There's no God of the sun. There's no God of the sky. There's no God of the Nile. There's no God of the ground. There's no God of the weather. There's no God of the cattle. There's no God of the bugs. There's no God of medicine. What have I got left? There's nothing. Who am I supposed to be mediating to? Who do I call upon to face this Yahweh? Habakkuk 2. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork, and when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says a piece of wood, awake to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is what Pharaoh has been confronted with. All of his idols are what? They're gone. He is supposed to represent them. (laughs) What do I represent when they've all been burned in the fire? What do I represent when they've all been crushed under his foot? Now I'm faced with what? A God with wrath and justice, and I have nothing. I mean, I threatened Moses. Don't you come back here or I'll kill you. And what'd the man do? He came back. He's not afraid of me. He's not afraid of my gods. He's not afraid of my army. He's not afraid of my power. He's not afraid. Why? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Moses has nothing to be afraid of because who has promised? God. Who has delivered? God. Who is is controlling? God. So Moses is not afraid. That's that's the one thing I really love. If you ever get a chance, like you got to spend three afternoons to watch like the, the... Thank you. Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, is by the end of that movie, there's the change in Charlton Heston's character, right? The mo- by the end of that movie, Moses is just like, get out of my way. <laughs> I mean, he's just walking in like Clint Eastwood in a Western, getting ready to shoot everybody. Because that's where he's at. I have God. You have nothing. So I will speak. This is Job, right? You are God, I am not, so you talk, and I'm going to sit here and shut up. My bad. That's literally what's going on in action. This is a picture. What will the nations do at the end when they rise up against the Lamb? At the Battle of Megiddo, when all the forces of evil are, are ascended and they have all gathered together, what will they do? Nothing. How will they fight? They won't. Who will forestall the judgment of the Lamb? No one. This is the story of Revelation. This is the picture. This is it in action, is that God, when his judgment is confirmed and when he is going to preserve his people, protect them and judge their enemies, what happens? He does. So then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Again, is this a surprise? No. 
Is this necessary? Yes. Ask even a non-believer, and you know how many prayers they know at least? Everybody knows at least which one. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will will be done. The fun part about that prayer is you know what you're asking God to do? What he's already doing. But you're asking him to do it and make sure you're in on it. Forgive us our trespasses. Give us our daily bread. Provide for my needs. Forgive my sins so that I will walk faithfully where? In your kingdom. Because what is this world? It is yours. Even if we're not there. That includes, Christian, both justice and mercy. Remember that. When Moses wanted to see God and God walks before him, we're going to proclaim God. What do we proclaim? The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And you're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, uh-huh. Who forgives iniquity, yes. Transgression and sin, yes. But he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. No! Because who doesn't want that part? Me! He brings about justice. This is why, as believers, we don't fear sin. Because it will either be dealt with by Christ upon the cross or upon the sinner in eternity. Those are the options. Sin will be dealt with. This is also the necessity of the work of Christ. This is why the advent of Christmas. There's the candles. I haven't gotten put away yet. But this is why the advent of Christmas. This is why Christ must come. God just cannot look down upon sin and go, oh, no. He, I've been watching too much Hogan's Heroes lately. He can't turn into Schultz. I see nothing. It's been on, and I've been enjoying it way too much. <laughs> it's just perfectly mindless and hysterical. But God can't do that. Why not? Because he is just. Because he is righteous. Because he is good. A just judge punishes wrongdoing. Hence Christ. Because the just judge does punish wrongdoing. Yet either on the sinner in eternity or upon Christ upon the cross. And that is why our repentance is effective. Not because, oh look at me, I turn from my sin. No, because by turning from my sin I am turning to God and trusting in his provision. His provision is Christ. His provision is the Holy Spirit. It is the embodiment of his grace and his mercy and his sanctification. This is why I walk, because to not walk faithfully is to say to a Holy Spirit who indwells me, shut up! Don't do that! <laughs> like, I sh like, I shouldn't have to tell you, don't tell God to be quiet. Because if I have to tell you that, you know what you have not experienced? God. You know who you do not know? God. Because when you recognize his holiness and his seat upon the throne of creation, you know what you do? You shut up and let him speak. This is why sanctification is successful in the Christian life. Because over time, we are quiet, and he instructs, and we learn, and we walk, and we progress in faithfulness and holiness until the day of completion. Not because we're good, but because he is good. And that becomes the charge, to walk faithfully. Hebrews 12, consider him talking about Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. 
so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Never thought about it like that, have we? Consider him and what Christ has endured to bring about salvation and what he has done. And now tell me how difficult your life is. Now tell me how hard the road you plow is. Now tell me how you cannot progress in sanctification. Because the answer is, you can't. Because when you contemplate God, when you contemplate all that he has done to condescend, as Philippians calls it, to come to us as one of us, to live in the world that he lived in, to minister in the way that he ministered, to die the death that he has died, to accomplish facing the wrath of God poured out on sin, to rise again. Contemplate all of that and then tell me, I have grievances. No, you don't. Not if you have contemplated all of that and if you have understood its effect and what it brings you. Instead, what you will say is, I have blessings untold and mercy immeasurable and the grace of God poured out in ways that I can not imagine. That's Christian living. You want a New Year's resolution? Resolve to live that life each and every day. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your love, all poured out on us, a people who did not deserve it. Lord, strengthen us. We know the truth. We see the world going in so many directions that we get caught up. Do not allow us to. But strengthen us that we would stand firm, grounded on your word, that we would contemplate you, think on your works, on your nature, and all that you are and all that you have done, And Lord, we would let that be the guide for our lives each and every day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Lord, I lift your name, oh my. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my death to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. But death to be. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high.
Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Oh, yeah. A um, couple of reminders real quick. I, in case you didn't get it, I know uh, Clark, your daughter, tested positive. She doing all right? And your grandson. So remember them in your prayers this week. Um, Sam and Shelby are still doing all right, but if you get a chance, give them a call. Just keep a check on them. They're going to just basically be sticking around at the house while they get some strength back. Doctor told Sam it could be weeks getting his strength back up. So just get a chance to think about them, remember them. Uh, make sure you tackle Bob and Carolyn. When are you guys going back? Okay, so we got some time to bother you yet. All right, good. So if you don't get them this week, get them next week. <laughs> so it's still good to see you guys. All right, uh, let's pray. Again, Lord, as we go, keep us strong, that as we travel in our separate ways, that we would remember we are part of one family, one nation, built by you, grounded in your work, sealed by your blood. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.